You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We're in a series called Tension right now. And over the years, if you're like me, you've known people that have attended some sort of church and, and maybe somewhere along the way they kind of gave up on God. I know a young couple who grew tired of the kind of fundamental church they were in growing up talking about God's ideal. That God's got an ideal way to have a prayer life. God's got an ideal way for them to do ministry. God's got an ideal standard of righteousness and an ideal way for you to raise your kids and an ideal way for you to run your marriage and an ideal way for you to fight temptation and an ideal way for you to give and an ideal way for you to live. But there wasn't any teaching in their church about what it means to be real with yourself and with God and with others. There wasn't any teaching in their church about being restored when you've messed up, that God would take broken things and make them beautiful. But on a whim, they attended a Christmas event at Sungrove Church and heard for the first time in their lives in the church that God loves messy people. I know a man who tried Christianity, but quickly found out in his own power, he couldn't live up to God's ideal regarding purity. And he figured God's just going to give up on him. So he decided to pull the trigger first and give up on God. And he walked away from church until one day he walked into Sun Grove Church. I know a woman who got divorced a few years ago and her church at the time told her that divorced people couldn't practice or participate sacred practices and feeling forced out because she no longer had the ideal marital status. She walked out of that church. And over time, she came to Sun Grove Church and she began in her time here to understand that God loves broken people and God uses broken people like you and like me for his kingdom work. Have you ever noticed in your most desperate moments that that you're reaching for hope, but on the inside you feel hopeless and maybe it's you that's causing the hopelessness. Maybe it's your culture. Maybe it's your circumstances. And in the midst of hopelessness, you're still reaching or crying out somewhere. Could there be hope? There's a tension that exists between the hopelessness you find yourself in and the hope that could be out there. Well, God uses that. God uses tension because it's powerful. God uses tension as a megaphone to get you to pay attention to him. God uses the tension of your heart and the tension of your head to understand him in a much bigger way. But oftentimes we don't like tension. We would rather have absolutes. We think it just somehow makes life easier. But we think that tension would threaten what is true, but it doesn't. We think that tension would water down what is true, but tension doesn't water down the truth. The truth is truth. We think sometimes tension competes with what is true, but it doesn't. For example, the mercy of God doesn't diminish the justice of God. It amplifies it. That God's gonna be completely merciful, but also completely just, and he's willing in his love to pay for our injustices with his own life. It amplifies his love. Works don't water down the grace of God. They amplify it because God has done great works for us. We in turn want to do good in our world. Love doesn't mute the law. It amplifies it. We are looking at just how important tension is and the role that tension plays in our lives In fact, we've been looking at this with these different books. We've looked last week that you can know God. You can know him, but God is a mystery. 
God has made himself to be revealed and known, yet God is a mystery. God can do what God wants to do. And there's a tension that must exist between those two. If you try to do it to one absolute or the other, you will miss out on who God really is. You'll try to know God and put him in your own box. God's a mystery. He can do what he's going to do. But today we're going to look at this truth, that God has an ideal. But God also uses broken people. God has an ideal. He has your best interest and my best interest in mind, but he also uses broken people. Here's why you need this sermon. God has great plans for broken people like you and me who have fallen short of his ideals. No one is perfect apart from the righteousness of Christ. And I couldn't stand up here today if the expectation was perfection, could I? And you couldn't sit out there with good conscience and think I could be a part of a church if the expectation was perfection because apart from Jesus Christ, none of us experience any perfection. In fact, it's his righteousness that is put upon us when we put our faith and our trust in him. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. It's all about Jesus every time. And that's good news because we have an accuser out there who wants to make you convinced or me convinced that when we've fallen short, when we've not lived up to God's ideal, that God's gonna be done with us or that we can't actually step out and do great things for him. Write this down. It's not a problem to solve. It's a tension to manage. So tension is something we have to manage. It's not a problem to solve. If you, if you solve and say, God's only got ideals, then you're gonna make God very black and white and people are gonna say, but I'm convinced that in the Bible, God used broken people. If you try to say, well, God just uses broken people and none of us ever have to live up to God's ideals, none of us ever have to work and let God's Holy Spirit move us toward those things, then we will never grow. We'll just stay broken. It's a, it's a, the tension is not a problem to solve. It's a tension to manage. Now, our world has a lot of ideals. Our world has ideals about how you should work out, how you should eat, how you should uh, handle your finances, how you should play sports, how you should have creative hobbies in your life, how you should work, the kind of house you ought to live in, the kind of car you ought to drive. Our world has plenty of ideals. In fact, all of us were, were kind of classically conditioned early on to the ideals of the world. And you know what that was called? Straight A's. That's what we were all after. We're all working in school. We're all working hard. The ideal, if we could all live up to it, we would all get straight A's. That's the world's ideas. But do you want to know why I know I'm broken and why I know you're broken? Because not all of us have gotten straight A's. In fact, very few of us have ever gotten straight A's. When I was in college, and by the way, like I've got a master's degree in the Bible, but when I was in college, the only time I ever got straight A's was in my third year, I'd gotten through a lot of the general ed classes I just didn't care too much about. And now I was in with a lot of my core classes in the subject matter that I really was interested in and that I really cared about. And I had a massive shoulder injury and I had torn my rotator cuff. And because of that, and because of the physical therapy that I was doing, I could not play volleyball and I could not play drums, which I had previously been doing every day. So what did I do? I buckled down. I studied I had time and margin in my life to live up to the ideal. And it's the only time in my life that I got straight A's. I had in the summer, coming back off of that, began to rehab, went back to playing volleyball and playing drums. But the only time I got straight A's was when an injury happened. 
Some of you feel like that's happened in your life right now. That our culture, our world is broken right now. It's injured. It's on time out. And this is a moment that God wants to use in your life and my life to get us to be able to look not only at the fact that he uses broken people, but that he wants to push us a little bit closer to his ideals and that he loves us in the midst of that. Well, God has an ideal. His principles work. If you follow the principles of the Bible regarding your finances, you're gonna find out, oh my goodness, they work. They work if I save like God would tell me to save. If I honor him with the tithe like he tells me to do it. If I honor and I'm generous to other people. In fact, those that cannot actually ever repay me. You're gonna say God reveals that it works, that he'll bless me, that he'll watch out for me, that he will care for me. He gives us wisdom. God has a lot of principles in scripture that work. Wouldn't you agree? But somewhere along the way, your humanity is gonna come out. You're gonna mess up. You're gonna disobey. You're gonna wreck something. And in that moment, you need someone to lean into your life and say to you, let's look back at the Bible and see how many people in the Bible that God used in great ways were messed up. And look what God did with them. You need someone in your life to let you know that you're not finished, that God's not done with you, that he still has great plans for you. And actually, when I read about families in the Bible, I feel better about my family. And I feel better about the families of my friends and people I know. Why? Because we're messed up. The people are broken. There's so much brokenness in the families in the Bible. How do I know this? Because you and I were born into sin, and as a result of sin, brokenness happens. You don't believe me? Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a bad experience in your life that challenged your naive belief that people were basically born good? And all of a sudden you saw the capacity of people for evil. You saw the capacity of people for harm. You saw the wickedness of people just come forth. You saw the betrayal of people and suddenly your naive belief that just everybody's kind of good was challenged. Paul quotes in God's words in Romans chapter three, he says this, beginning with verse 10, he says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. John Eldridge says this, if we're honest deep down, we're broken. He said this, And I'm quoting him. He says, human beings are ravenous. A famished craving for life haunts every person. We crave fullness. It's our design. We were creating for unceasing happiness, fullness, joy, and life. But ever since we lost the Garden of Eden, we have never known ourselves a total day of fullness. We're never filled in any lasting way. We look to a marriage, a child, our work, or some food or drink, or our next adventure, or the next dinner out, or a new car, anything to touch that ache with inside, inside of us. We are ravenous beings. Then the world gets in the way of our ravenous ache. It constantly thwarts us. 
People don't treat us as we long to be treated. We can't find the happiness we crave. Our boss might be harsh, so we sabotage him. Our our spouse withholds sex, so we indulge online. And it won't be stopped. Then somebody stands in the way of our desperate hunger. They feel the fury of our rage. We are ready to kill. People shoot each other over traffic incidents. Parents abuse a baby who keeps them up at night. We shred one another on social media over political disagreements. That is why Jesus warned us about murderous rage. This is the human condition. Listen, he sums it up so well. The human condition is this, ravenous and ready to kill anything that gets in our way. We are broken. Well, if we're broken then why does God even show us the ideal? Why spend the time? Why take the time? Why would God do that? Write this down. God's ideal shows us our need for him. We break the chain of brokenness by doing things God's way. We're gonna look today at the life of a man named Samson. Samson was set apart by God as a judge for the nation of Israel. Now you need to understand as we begin to look at this passage that judges were not like a judge we would experience here in America. Judges were in the time of Israel before there were kings. And at that time, it was a theocracy. That means that God led the nation, and but he would raise up a judge to be almost like the military leader, to be the one to rally the people, to be the one who would seek God on behalf of the people, and then they would follow in the way that God would lead. That was what a judge was. And one of the judges that God raised up was a man named Samson. He was the strongest man alive. And even though he was strong, he was like a little baby sometimes. Have you ever known someone like that? They might be physically fit and very strong, but on the inside, they're like a seven-year-old. They're like a fussy little kid. They whine to get their way. They always want things their way. And if we're picking up, if you have your Bible, open with me to Judges chapter 14, beginning with verse two. It said, when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman. This is not a Israeli woman. It's not a Hebrew woman, an Israelite that he's supposed to be marrying in, he sees a enemy woman, a Philistine, a foreigner, an outsider, a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now he says, go get her for me as my wife. And his father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Okay, I don't know how he actually said it. But the point is, he said it. He said that, go get her for me. See, the stereotype of a really strong person who's actually not too bright kind of started with Samson. But I gotta tell you, he's not alone. That Samson's downfall was women. And I gotta let you know that for every she-devil in the world, there's a he-dummy. And in this case, it's Samson. That he's the one who falls prey to this woman. See, God has an ideal for life and marriage, but Samson says, I'm gonna go outside God's ideal and get my needs met my own way. And this began a path of brokenness in Samson's life. It wasn't a one-time event. This began a series of brokenness in his life. I want you to realize that there's usually a deception or a darkness or a demand that starts us on the journey of brokenness. And sometimes when we're in a season like this, God wants to reveal to you where you might have a deception, 
where you might have a demand or where there's darkness because his concern is that will begin to lead to a life of brokenness, a series, a path of broken events in your life. And he loves you so much. He doesn't want you to go down there. But as is the case, a deception or a darkness or a demand started Samson on that journey. So Samson takes this woman. She's like his wife and And he's against the Philistines. The Philistines are the outsiders. They're the enemy. They're the people opposing the people of God. And and Samson is supposed to be leading the people of God. And at one point, he challenges these guys, these other men to a riddle, these Philistine men. And the bet, so if he says, if you can't solve this riddle, and you can look and see in the scriptures what the riddle actually is. But he basically says this, if you can't figure it out, then you owe me 30 sets of clothes. Clothes were like, you know, money in those days. You were what you wore and what you had was limited. And so to get 30 sets, this is a big bet. And so these men, they try and try, but they can't solve it. So what do they do? They say, well, he's, he's with a Philistine woman. Let's go around it and let's talk to her. They can't solve it. So they go to her and they threaten her and say, you've got to figure out this riddle for us. Otherwise, we're going to burn you to death and burn your family and your father to death. So the scriptures pick up in Judges 14, verse 15. It says this. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself at him sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? And she cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Now I want you to understand something. He fussed to his parents, go get me that woman. Now she fusses to him. Let me tell you, any man who's ever been married, if your wife cries for a day, you feel horrible. If she cries all seven days, it just wears you down. And he got worn down. He finally tells her what it is. And she, in turn, explains the riddle to her people. So Samson gets burned by the disloyalty of his own wife. So what happens, burning with anger, he pays the riddle debt, not by going to the store and buying 30 sets of clothing and giving it to these men. He goes out and finds 30 Philistine men. He kills them and he takes their clothes and he gives them used clothes to the people that he made the bet with. Then burning with anger, he goes to claim his wife because she was with them, but his wife had been given away to another man. So Samson becomes a grass fire arsonist, burning their wheat fields in revenge. But he receives revenge back as the Philistines burn his wife and her father to death. It started a pattern in his life, a demand, a darkness, or a deception. Well, how does he handle this? He says in Judges 15, 11, well, I did to them what they did to me. I did what they did to me. There's no reality with himself and his heart condition and God. It's just, I did what they did to me. And I want you to know something that in times like these, you're gonna watch and see that hurting people hurt people. They're gonna say, well, I've been hurt. 
So it's okay for me to project my hurt on other people. Hurting people hurt people. What Samson forgot is that the scriptures say that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But Samson decided it was his to avenge in his own power because he was the strongest man alive. He thought, I'll just take care of it my way and somehow I'll get out of this and I won't get burned. But the path of his life was one of continually getting burned. Write this down. Broken people try to fill their own emptiness instead of trusting God's ideal. So what does Samson do? So he say, wow, I sure learned my lesson about marrying one of those Philistine women. No, what he does, he goes and finds another one. He finds another woman, a woman named Delilah. And many of you have not even heard of his first wife, but you've heard of Samson and Delilah. And she prods him day after day because her people, the Philistines, have come to her again and said, how does Samson have such great strength? How is he so strong? How does he do this? How does he be so much stronger than us? And Samson tells her a lie. He says, well, if you take some, some bowstrings and you tie me up while I'm sleeping, then I won't be able to break them. Well, she calls the Philistines. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. It's a setup. He breaks the bowstrings and beats them all up and he escapes. Well, she cries about it. She says, please tell me how strong you are. And he says, well, they got to be like brand new bowstrings. You got to do it again with really good ropes and really good bowstrings. And so she does it again. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And they come rushing in to grab him and he breaks them all and he beats them up and he escapes. And now she's weeping. She's weeping. The scriptures say that not, she didn't just cry for seven days like the previous wife, but now Delilah prods him and cries day after day. The scriptures say she prodded him. There was no letdown. There was no break. There was no if and or but about it. She was going to find out. So she prods him day after day after day after day. And he finally tells her the secret of his strength is that he was set apart as a Nazarite to be a judge for the nation of Israel. And as part of his Nazarite vows that his parents had set him apart for, his hair had never been cut. I don't know about you, but if I were to ask around your household, how many of you have never, ever cut your hair? Probably nobody would raise their hand. I mean, even the pets would raise a paw. But for Samson, he had never cut his hair. We do mission work in India, and there are some people there that I think actually have not cut their hair. They grow their hair way down, like by their ankles and stuff, but it's some sort of vow. And it was the same in that Middle Eastern culture. And so for him, he had never cut his hair. And his hair, in his hair was his strength. Well, he finally tells her. She betrays him to the Philistines. While he's asleep, they shave his head. They tie him up. They say, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and he has no strength. He's just like any other man. His self-sufficiency is gone. He has no strength. In fact, at this point, he's bald. He is blind because they come and they gouge out his eyes after making fun of him and beating him and he's beaten. So he's bald, he's blind now and he's beaten and they would make sport of him. This is supposed to be Samson, the great Israelite, strongest man alive and look at what we've done to him. The Philistines, we've won and this happens for some time but they weren't watching him closely and we find out in the Bible that over some time his hair began to grow back. And the hair wasn't a secret, but rather the presence and the power of God in his life would have been the secret of his strength. 
But in Judges 16, 28, Samson prayed to the Lord. He says, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. See what has happened. They brought him to a festival and it's a big religious festival at a temple and there are thousands of Philistines there and they basically are making sport of him and making fun of him and he asked the attendant with them because he's blind to say, hey, just put my hands up against the pillars that support the temple so I can rest. And so the guy does that, has him put his hands up and this is the moment he prays. Sovereign God, he says, remember me. Remember me, God, is what he's saying. Though I violated your ideals, though I've lived a broken life, though I've fallen short of your principles, though I thought I could fill my own emptiness and my own power without you, what he's saying, God, remember me, let me fight. It's like the criminal on the cross. Dying on the cross, paying for the sins that he deserves. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, when we are humble before God, it engages his compassion. And if you've ever been in a place of brokenness and you've not known what to cry out to God, simply the idea is that you're afraid that God might have forgotten you, that God might have abandoned you, that God might have given up on you because of your behavior, because of your brokenness, because of your addiction, because of your sin, whatever that is. And it's in that moment that we cry out, Jesus, remember me. And Samson asked God to remember him. In fact, it's so interesting because he uses the proper name of God. All previously, he would pray different things, but now he uses the formal name. He says, Sovereign Lord. And in that confession, by using God's name, his sovereign name, instead of him saying, I'm powerful, I can work this way through my life, I can figure it out for myself in my own strength, he now is saying, Sovereign Lord. I'm putting myself in humility before you. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Humility engages God's compassion. And God uses broken people to demonstrate who he is. So what does Samson do? He puts his hands, he's got his hands on the pillars. And in that moment, he shoves those pillars apart with great strength from the Lord God. And as a judge should, and as a judge would to lead in opposition against the other people who were opposing the gods of Israel, the one true living God who worshiped other gods. Samson now in this temple of one of those gods shoves the pillars down. The temple falls in on itself and over 3,000 Philistines were destroyed in that day. Write this down. God uses broken people to demonstrate who he is. You ever heard someone tell a testimony or just a story about their life and, and it, you try to think like, wow, they've got just such a great story. It's just amazing. It's, it's terrible and awful all at the same time, but it's amazing. And that just elevates the person. That's not what God does. God uses tension in our life. He uses our brokenness in our life to demonstrate who he is, that it's all about him. It's not about demonstrating you. It's, it's not about showing off you and your horrible story. It's about demonstrating to a hopeless world that God loves broken people and he cares for them and that broken people play an important part in God's story. It's God's story. 
And we play a part in his story. It's not about our story. So the question is, how does the story of you fit within the big picture story of God? There's a tension in our story that there's going to be times of brokenness and times of ideal. And God's going to use both for good in his kingdom. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul writes, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not our story. It's his story. The good and beautiful God is revealed as he loves us in the tension. When God loves us in the tension between broken and ideal, it reveals what a great and beautiful and awesome and caring and loving God he is. He's revealed as he loves us between the two. But the danger is that you think God can't use you. I can't be used by God if I'm not perfect. I can't be used by God if I'm not mature enough. I can't be used by God until I stop being broken. I can't be used by God until I'm only ideal. And that's not true of the people in the Bible at all. Let me remind you, Noah was a drunk. Abraham, he was too old. Jacob was a habitual liar. Leah, poor girl, was ugly. Joseph was abused Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson, we looked at, he's a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Timothy was too young. King David had an affair. And not only that, he was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked for three years. Aren't you relieved? Jonah ran away from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Timothy had an ulcer. Peter denied Christ three times. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was a religious extremist. And Lazarus, well, he couldn't help it. Lazarus was dead. But God used broken people to make his name great. And he wants to do that with you, that there is, believe me, parents, as you raise your kids, young adults, as you begin to live your life following the Lord, adults who've been through rough experiences, people who've been through trauma, people who are going through rough things right now and anxiety and stress, let me let you know that God uses broken people. And God has an ideal because it reveals how great he is. And that great God loves you in your brokenness and wants to use your life in great ways. All these people came to life when they realized that their dream that they've been looking for all along is actually God, not putting their lack of confidence on God, but letting God speak and work and in through them, through their brokenness, toward his ideal, for his glory, forever and ever in his big picture story. Maybe for you right now, you realize you're broken, but you need Jesus. You've never cried out to God, remember me. You've never had that moment where you got, God, in this moment of where I am, and I've been watching, I've been listening, and I've been thinking about these things, but God, I realize the condition of my heart, and I'm saying, God, just remember me, I'm broken. I need you. While I was a sinner, you died for me. And could your death wash away my sin? And the answer is yes, 
Yes, that's how great his love is for you. And right where you are, will you just pray a prayer like this to say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried and that you rose to new life because you're God. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Would you wash me as white as snow? Would you make me a new creation on the inside? Give me your Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me and make me yours. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And for those of you who prayed that prayer right now, your sins are washed away. God loves you. You are free from condemnation. You no longer have to fear death. Even if the worst were to happen, even if you fell ill, you wouldn't have to fear death because the same God who rose from the dead will rise you from the dead to be with him forever. God loves you. He uses broken people and he wants you to commit your life to say, God, I'll use me in the tension between my brokenness and to the tension of when I'm living up to your ideals. Use it for your story and for your glory forever. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.